And so the reading today comes from Romans chapter 7, verses 13 through 8, 1. And it says, did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin, for I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law. That is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Christ Jesus or Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. All right, thank you, Zach. I think you forgot one word in your statement. You don't have any kids yet. (laughs) Zach's getting married in 13 days. I might be involved in that somehow. Well, good morning, Arcadia. Glad to see you all. My name is Frank. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, Welcome. We're glad you're here. We're starting a new series today. Before we get to that, um, let me just say that, uh, just add a little reminder that uh, last, this past Wednesday, we started a new midweek Bible study series. It's five weeks, so we have four weeks left. It's not a, uh, it's not something that you have to, it's not building on anything, so you, you can come Whenever you want, you don't have to be there all five weeks. We had a great crowd this last week, though, but it's a, it's a league of their own. It's five important women in the Bible. We did Esther this last week. Um, I taught the whole book of Esther. It was a lot of fun. We even had um, Haman Hat cookies that my sister-in-law baked that were delicious and celebra- sort of celebrated Purim in the midst of that. And then um, this week, we're going to do Abigail. And uh, I'll talk for a few minutes about chapter 25 in 1 Samuel, but then I'm going to invite uh, one of our um, women leaders up, uh, Stacy uh, Barrett, and we're going to have about a 45-minute conversation about the text and about contemporary issues, and I think it'll be great. So we invite you to that. It's from 7 to 8 o'clock in this room here. So as I mentioned, we're introducing, starting a new seven-week series today. We're going to study Romans chapter 8. We're going to discuss this important chapter of Scripture primarily through the lens of the third person of the Holy uh, the third person of the Trinity. So Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. 
Uh, Romans chapter 8 is primarily about the work that the Holy Spirit does in those that Christ has saved. And so we want to take a much deeper dive into that. And I will just tell you that uh, just myself and talking to all the other um, pastors who helped preach through our previous nine-week series through Isaiah 40 through 55, this is just so different. Already, all of us preparing these messages, it's so different going from having to preach on uh, two, sometimes three chapters of Scripture a week down to just a few verses. And so it's going to be very different. I would encourage you to have your Bibles out and open during this, because during the series, uh, whoever's preaching it, myself included, and especially, there will be times during each sermon when we say, now look again at verse such and such. Look closely at it and follow along with what we're talking about. So it'll be helpful for you to have um, your Bibles open in front of you. Uh, Here's the lineup of what we're going to do the next seven weeks. Today is Spirit of Life. Next week is Spirit for Life. Week three, spirit who dwells. Week four, spirit of adoption. Week five, spirit of hope. Week six, the spirit who prays. And week seven, the spirit of victory. Um, Not going to give a whole lot of contextual background on the book of Romans other than to make sure you understand that it was written in the year 58 A.D., And it was written to a church that Paul had never visited before. Paul planted a ton of churches and had visited many churches. He had not yet visited the church in Rome. It was probably the biggest Christian church at the time, other than maybe the church in Jerusalem. It was already a pretty noteworthy church. And and he kept saying that he wanted to go and visit the church in Rome and that he was planning to go and visit the church in Rome. And two years later, he did make it to the church in Rome, although not the way he thought he would. If you read the book of Acts, you find out that he eventually gets to the church in Rome, but he goes in chains because he's a prisoner uh, at that time, and he's been uh, accused and indicted of insurrection. And so he says, I appeal my case to Caesar, which he had that right to do, which meant he had to go to Rome and present his case before Caesar. So he was in the prison in Rome for a couple of years, but that's, that's how he got to know uh, in person the church in Rome. But he had known it by reputation. He had known it by uh, reports. And the church in Rome at the time certainly had many Jewish Christians, but also because it was in Rome, it was loaded with uh, Greek, Greco-Roman Christians. So uh, it was a, a real mixture of people who were uh, believing in Christ and following Christ, and he writes this longest of his letters to this church, encouraging them, teaching them doctrine, and building them up, and then applying what we know about the gospel to their lives. So we're going to study chapter 8, which is sort of the nexus of the whole book and chapter uh, verse one of chapter eight is the nexus of that uh, chapter. It's like the nexus of the of the entire book, and we will eventually get there today. Today we're going to talk about the spirit of life. Not much because we're just going to nibble at chapter eight today. But for context, we want to get a running start into the series by spending some time in chapter seven. That's why Zach read so much from chapter seven. 
And we're going to start at verse 7 of chapter 7, even back up a little bit from before where Zach started. Um, But it's important that we do this contextual work so that we understand what is going on in chapter 8. You maybe heard me say from time to time that I really don't like chapter divisions in the Bible because uh, so many of these chapter divisions seem to be arbitrarily placed. And when we as the readers see that we're done with one chapter and we're moving on with another chapter, in our minds we think we're done with that topic, now we're moving on to a new topic. And, and let me tell you something, there's probably no more connection between two verses in the Bible anywhere else than in 7.25 to 8.1. They're just connected, and, and to divide it with a chapter and make us think that there's something new going on um, just sort of does violence to the text, and so that's one of the reasons why we're going to start in chapter 7. So let's start there, 7, 7 through 12. Paul writes, what then shall we say? That the law is sin by no means, yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin also came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and and righteous and good. So here's a question. Is Paul saying that the law is bad? Understand, he's Uh, We can't go all the way back, but since chapter 5 of Romans, he has been writing that the law inflames us to sin. The law actually serves as a way of stoking our desires to sin. As humans, we naturally push back against restrictions. And if you think this isn't true, just think about every time you get into your car. The speed limit is not a suggestion. It is the law. Well, I can go five over and not get caught. Sure, but you're still breaking the law. Uh, Our founding pastor used to say that um, he was once pulled over for speeding, and and he said to the officer, I don't know why you're pulling me over for going 11 miles over the speed limit. Why aren't you catching real criminals? And And the cop just looked at him and said, I am. I just did. You see, we just push back. We just naturally push back. So when God says no, we naturally want to do it. When our boss says no, when our spouse says, if you have one of those, when our spouse says no. And so because the law inflames us to sin, second thing, it seems as though the law also brings us death. Paul talks about this. He says, I was alive prior to reading the law. Okay, here's what he's saying. He's speaking metaphorically. What he was saying is before he knew that he was sinning, he thought he was just fine. I I was like that too before I came to know Christ. I was sure that I was just fine. I wasn't a sinner. I was basically good. Everything was going to be fine. I had no problems. And And then the Holy Spirit starts its work inside of me, and I come to Christ when I'm 27 years old, and I start to realize, oh, man, I've got just a few little problems. And then I began to realize I got bigger problems. I've got a lot of problems. All this stuff that I thought was fine is actually uh, an offense to God and a problem for other people. And I began to understand, and that brought this sense of death 
to me because what I thought was good and alive and everything was fine, it just sort of brought this sense of death to me. So the question remains, is God's law bad? Paul writes, by no means. No, it's not the law that's bad. He clarifies in this paragraph, the law is holy and righteous. The law is God's. Rather, sin manifests because of the weakness of human beings. That's the problem. Sin is the problem. Our sin nature, which we've had this problem all the way back since Genesis chapter 3. The law, God himself, reveals our sin, reveals the, the, um, the, the unholy desires of our flesh. And that, therefore, what the law does then, that therefore points us to our need for a supernatural intervention on our life because we have no ability to fix ourselves. That points to our need for a savior, for deliverance from sin, for a Messiah, which Paul is going to get to in these next 14 verses that Zach read for us. So these next 14 verses are, in many circles, a very famous passage. And what we're about to read and work through is not only the Apostle Paul's own experience, but it's also the experience of two large groups of people, which then pretty much make up anybody who has ever lived. So here's the first group, same experience of all of his Jewish brothers and sisters, his kinsmen, so to speak. All of them have lived under the Mosaic law, the law of God, which we find in the Old Testament. And all of them have a a moral understanding based in this law of right and wrong, of good and evil, of darkness and light, those kinds of things. The problem is that while the law is able to point out what is right and wrong, the law has no power to manifest in us compliance to the law. The law has no ability to be able to bring about compliance. It's just pointing out what's wrong. And then second of all, it's not just the Jews who are supposed to live according to the Mosaic law, but also any other person, Jew, Gentile, or otherwise, who claims to have some sort of moral compass, moral grid, some personal sense of right or wrong, some ethical worldview. You you don't have to be a Christian or religious or anything to, to be able to state what your personal moral view is of the world, what your understanding of right and wrong is, what your understanding of justice and injustice. All of us naturally have an understanding and so what we'll do is if, if we don't know God, we don't know Jesus, we, we're not interested in religion, we actually build our own moral code that we say that we live by. And so like God's people, everyone else has a moral code, something they say they live by, but again, they have no ability to live up to it. It's so fast. Here's my moral code. I don't believe in God or Jesus or any of that stuff, but here's my moral code. And then they break the moral code. And what's the first thing they do? Well, there are exceptions. There is rationalizations. You know what else there is? There's also the fact that I'm not at fault because it was their fault. Blame shifting is very common in any moral code. Blame shifting goes all the way back to Genesis 3. Adam and Eve rebelled against God. Their second sin was blame shifting. Both of them were like, not me. Adam even blamed the woman, okay? And then he blamed God. We're blame shifting and everything. And so everybody, not just Jews, but everybody have this internal battle with their code and their flesh, and, their, and the flesh, their desires, almost always win. And then, of course, like anyone, they rationalize their shortcomings. Paul says, this system doesn't work for anyone. We're all a mess, and we need deliverance from this conundrum. And this passage is the passage leading into and contextualizing chapter 8, 
and the work of the Holy Spirit, which this series is all about. Um, Chapter 7, verse 13 through 25, actually before you get to maybe 13 through 23, really is there's no mention of the Holy Spirit And so really, it's sort of like Paul is saying, this is what life is like without the Holy Spirit. Good luck living that life, okay? So here we go. We're going to talk about the Holy Spirit throughout this series, but this leads up to it. We're going to take these verses now in the rest of chapter 7 in three parts. So here's the first part, verses 13 through 18. Paul writes, Did that which is good, then, bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me. Through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law, that it is good. So it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. So now look very closely at verse 13. Two things there. Paul is saying sin is so sinful, sin is so corrupting, that it takes even that which is good and holy, and it corrupts it. Sin even ruins God's good commandments. Here's the second thing. The law and the sin together prove to us that sin is so sinful that you and I can never keep the law. We can't keep any moral code, even a moral code that we come up with ourselves and continue to adjust downward because we can never keep it. You see, the law is provided not with the expectation that we're ever going to keep it, but so that we can understand just how sinful we are, thus pointing us to the truth that we need this supernatural intervention by Christ, by Jesus, the cross and the resurrection in order to have life, in order to be saved from our sin. The law cannot save us. Neither can our own morality save us. And then look closely again at verses 14 and 15. Here's the problem. God's law is good and spiritual, but my flesh... My desires are corrupt and sinful, so they fight with each other. I know what is good, but my sinful desires are so powerful that I not only sin, but then my crooked mind, without the Spirit of Christ, also figures out how to rationalize my sin and explain it away and blame others for it. We practice what Isaiah writes in chapter 5, verse 20 of his book, that which is good we call evil, and that which is evil we call good. And then look very closely at verse 15. It is as though there are two people living inside of us. One that knows what is good and wants to do what is good, and the other that can only do evil and is very good at winning that tussle between good and evil. These two two persons inside myself fighting it out. The very things I do not want to do, those are the things I find myself doing. So some of you have probably heard me talk about this before, but it's so instructive and so helpful. Uh, In the 19th century, late 19th century, there was an author named Robert Louis Stevenson. Some of you maybe have heard of Robert Louis Stevenson. Okay, He wrote the book, so everybody knows the book as Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Uh, The actual title of the book is The Strange Case, 
of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. And what's interesting about that is he came up with that title a little bit tongue-in-cheek. Uh, in other words, the strange case part. That, that strange, it's really not that strange. What, one of the things he's pointing out through the story of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde is that all of us have this internal struggle going on inside of us. Not all of us end up murdering people, but all of us have this internal struggle in which the dark side of us, the evil side of us, the dark passenger, as one other author has described it, tends to win a lot. Now, here's what else you might not know about Robert Louis Stevenson. He was raised in a Presbyterian home. His grandfather was a, was a minister. He wrote this book in 1886, and he actually wrote Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde as an allegory of Romans chapter 7, verses 13 through 23. And in the story, I've read it twice, in the story he specifically quotes the exact wording of Romans chapter 7. Now he doesn't cite it, there isn't a footnote in there, but if you've read the book of Romans, you know that's exactly what he is quoting in there. So he writes this allegory to help us understand that this struggle goes on and all. We all have a Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. They may be manifest differently, but we all have that struggle within us. And then verse 18 really is the key to all of this, but many people hate it, just hate it, because it runs against the grain of our cultural mantra that all of us are good and wonderful, but the truth of our tragic condition in this world is spelled out in verse 18. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but I do not have the ability to carry it out. We are sinners, and we need God to be able to save us. And the good news is that this is the truth, that God saves us. That's what Paul is working towards. So hang in there with me. Look at verses 21 through 23. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Don't you just feel that struggle? Don't you feel that internal toss? I sure do. I sure do. Every time I get in my car, I feel it for crying out loud, you know? We think it's going to be so easy to do the right thing. I remember before I came to Christ, I, it, it was just, it was so easy for me to spout my little moral code and talk about how great I am to living up to it and, and then realize that I'm not even living up to half of it. But I was really good at hiding the part that I wasn't living up to. Sin is so powerful. And I'm not saying we're not responsible for our sin. We are. I'm just saying that we can't stop it. Paul is saying that we can't stop it. We need Jesus. We need Jesus. And Paul is working toward that. He's working toward two of the greatest verses in all of the Bible. Verses 22 and 23, what we just read, is a final summation of the internal war that all of us have, that all of us experience, that all of us are aware of, that all of us struggle with, that all of us wish we could fix, but we can't. The only power you and I have over our sin, over our flesh, over our contrary to God desires is the deliverance that comes from the resurrected Christ living in us through the indwelling Holy Spirit. So here it comes. 
24 through 8.1. Paul writes, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, the reason I read those three verses together is that it's very important to understand that the first thing everybody needs is an accurate self-assessment of who they are. I'm so surprised in so many Christian circles the number of people who say, I just, I just want to go to a church that only has the good news. I just want to hear the good news. Well, there, there has to be, by definition... There has to be bad news for there to be good news. If there's no bad news, there's no good news. What's the point? You have to start with an accurate self-assessment. You have to start with the bad news. You have to start with what we're not capable of. We're not capable of saving ourselves. We must cry out to God. This is Paul. It's written down, but I, I can see him just wretched man that I am. This is so frustrating, God. Who can save me? Who can save me? Who will it be? And it's God through His Son, Jesus Christ, by the power of His Holy Spirit, the Trinity. And the result of this salvation, then you get to the good news and the result. Like I said, sometimes I hate chapter divisions. Chapter 8, verse 1, is the exclamation point on chapter 7, verses 24 and 25. Paul writes... Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I would argue, as I said earlier, chapter 8, verse 1 is the nexus of this great book. This great book. Um, my favorite Bible professor in school is going back a number of years. And I'm very thankful that the guy is still alive because I felt like he was kind of old even then. But he's still alive. He's still around GCU. He's, he's now retired, but he teaches adjunct and uh, but he was a full professor at GCU at the time that uh, I was there in the, in the uh, early and mid-90s. Um, just a great a guy named uh, Dr. Mike Baird. Um, I took the letter to the church in Rome as a class from him. It was a, it was a senior level class. And he asserts, by the way, this Baird, he's, he's no flunky. He's a New Testament scholar who has written Greek New Testament textbooks. If you want to learn Koine Greek, just buy Dr. Baird's Greek New Testament textbook. And within three, four, five years, you'll be proficient in New Testament Greek. Okay? But he asserts that this letter that Paul writes to the church in Rome is the single greatest and most important piece of literature ever produced in the history of the world. The most important. The greatest. He and others, there are many other scholars who do the same thing, they call this letter to the, to the church in Rome the fifth gospel. They say it's the gospel of Paul. They refer to it that way. And this verse, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, is the centerpiece of the greatest and most important piece of literature that's ever been written in the history of the world. That's the gospel. That's the good news. This letter that Paul writes, 16 chapters, but it has one goal, one thesis, one theme, one main point, one purpose. Righteousness, or salvation, however you want to describe it, righteousness is found only in Jesus, 
and the righteous shall live by faith. And then that's what verse 8 starts getting into. We need the Holy Spirit dwelling within us so that we can live by faith. Chapter 7 is, this is what it's like to live without the Spirit of God, and now you're going to see what it's like to live with the Spirit of God, dwelling in you, leading you, guiding you, and directing you. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, let me just take two or three more minutes to unpack that verse a little bit. What does chapter 8, verse 1 even mean? Well, it means this. All of us, we talked about this in the Isaiah um, series as well, but all of us at some point, we're going to stand before God, and it's going to be very much like we are standing before a judge in a courtroom. We're in a courtroom standing before a judge. We've been indicted for our sin. All of us will be indicted, which separates us from God. But we have not been uh, found guilty yet. We have not yet been condemned. We have not been convicted of it. We've just been indicted. We're going to stand before God. The question is, who's going to defend us? Are we going to stand there and go, well, you know, I gave a little money here, and I tried to do this for my neighbor, and whatever. Is that what we're going to do? Or are we going to have a defense attorney and an advocate? Those of us who are in Christ, we have a a defense attorney. We have an advocate, and he never loses. He never loses. He is our advocate. He's our defense attorney. He's the satisfaction for the sentence that would be imposed upon us for our offense if we didn't know him. He's the payment for anything and everything that we might owe to God because of our transgressions. And through him, we've been deemed righteous and holy. Anyone who is in Christ, when we stand before God, what God sees is Jesus' finished work on the cross in his resurrection. He doesn't see us in our sinfulness. That's why there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This is such good news. We are saved. And so when we come to to Christ, we also know that the Holy Spirit comes to dwell within us, to lead us, to guide us, to comfort us, to convict us, to reveal truth to us, to confront us, to correct us, to rebuke us, to train us, and to show us the hope and the faith that we have in the truth of the gospel. We're going to dive more deeply into this next week, of course. We're going to do verses 1 through 8 of chapter 8 next week. But Paul moves from this centerpiece verse of of 8.1 into verses 3 and 4, where he writes that we are no longer condemned for our sin because God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Holy Spirit is, in effect, the lifeblood of those who know Jesus. Do you know Jesus? You can know him right now, today, if you don't. And for those of you that do know him, I hope this is an encouragement to be reminded. Number one, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. When we say you should preach the gospel to yourself every single day, that's the verse I would go to. I, I know it's like, oh, I've got to memorize a verse. Some of you are like, I've got a me- verse memorized. Jesus wept. Okay, this one is a little bit deeper, okay? 
It's a little bit deeper, a little bit more encouraging when your mind is doing that thing and it's just going in that negative spiral downward. Just say, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And then welcome the Holy Spirit to lead you in that. Uh, after I pray and we, and we begin our time of reflection, just know that there will be people standing in the wings who would love to pray with you or answer any questions that you might have about any of this. So let's pray right now. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for uh, this glorious word and this truth. And God, again, I just pray that we would be reminded over and over, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Thank you for that great gift. What an encouragement. What a joy. God, help us to live by that. Help us to then say, all right, Holy Spirit, come and do your work in me. I know you're there. I know you're there. Let me stir you up now, and let me follow you. Help us to do that. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to have our time of reflection and response now, and we're going we're to not only come to the Lord's table, but we're also going to sing two songs as uh, we do that. And as our team leads us in that, so if our communion servers would please come forward now. I, I, there are certain, some of you do this too, I do it too. There are certain parts of scripture that I just go back to and read and reread. And I was, again, in the Gospels reading this week about that last night of Jesus' life and, and uh, you know, the the Lord's Supper and, and the commissioning of that and how he gathered all of his disciples the night before he's betrayed. And just thinking about, again, it seems in the text of the Gospels that the disciples knew that something was about to happen, but they were still very confused about it. They still hadn't wrapped their minds around the idea that Jesus was, he, he was supposed to come and save Israel from the Romans, but he's going to die and then what's this stuff about him being raised again? I mean, none of that made sense to them. And I can understand that. And so they're feeling the weight of that, but they're feeling the weight in confusion. Jesus is there just feeling the weight of what he's about to do, what he's about to go through. He even prays, God, let this cup pass before me, but not my will, but your will be done. He knew his mission. He was just asking one last time, Father, if there's a plan B, could we talk about that right now? father said no so the weight of Jesus feeling that and and then he picks up the bread and he gives thanks and he breaks it and he says this is my body it's given for you and then he picks up the cup of the wine and he says this is the blood of the new covenant poured out for you do these things in remembrance of me and Paul is so moved by that that later on when Paul writes one of his letters he says that every time we eat this bread and drink of this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. Paul is saying, look, something tragic happened, but it resulted in eternal life for those of us who know him. Let's proclaim that. Let's celebrate that. So when you step out into the aisle and come forward um, for the Lord's Supper, remember that you're stepping out, certainly understanding that this is sacred, it's a sacrament, but also stepping out in gratitude and joy and celebration. So let's do that now.
in the crushing, in the pressing, you are making new wine. In the soil I now surrender, you are breaking new ground. So I yield to you and to your careful hand When I trust you I don't need to understand Make me a vessel Make me an offering Make me whatever you want me to be I came here with nothing that all you have given me. Jesus, bring new wine out of me. In the crushing, in the pressing, you are making new wine in the soil I now surrender you are breaking new ground you are breaking new ground make me a vessel make me offering make me whatever you want me to be I came here with nothing but all you have given me Jesus bring new wine out of me Jesus bring new wine out of me cause where the I lay down my own flesh to carry on new fire today. Oh, where there is new wine, there is new power, there is new freedom, and the kingdom is here. I lay down my own flesh. Make me an offering, make me whatever you want me to be. God, I came here with nothing, but all you have given me. Jesus, bring new wine out of me. Jesus, bring new wine out of me. 
Jesus, bring new wine out of me. Cause where there is new wine, there is new power, there is new freedom, and the kingdom is here. I lay down my own flames to carry your new fire today. We surrender to the Lord today. Cause where there is new wine, there is new power, there is new freedom, and the kingdom is here. I lay down my own flames to carry your new fire today. God came Jesus bring new wine out of me Jesus bring new wine out of me Jesus bring new wine out of me I'll bring you more than a song for a song in itself is not what you have required you search much deeper within through the way things appear you're looking into my heart i'm coming back to the heart of worship when it's all about you it's all about you, Jesus. I'm sorry, Lord, for the thing I made. But it's all about you, God. It's all about you, Jesus. When the music fades And all is stripped away And I simply calm Longing just to bring Something that's of worth That will bless your heart I'll bring you more than a song For a song in itself Is not what you have required You search much deeper within Through the way things appear You're looking into my heart I'm coming 
the heart of worship when it's all about you, God. When it's all about you, Jesus. I'm sorry, love, for the thing I've made it. When it's all about you, it's all about you, Jesus. King of endless worth, no one could express how much you deserve. The one we can pour, all I have is yours, every single breath. I'll bring you more than a song for a song in itself is not what you have required you search much deeper within through the way things appear you're looking into my heart coming back I'm coming back to the heart when it's all about you it's all about you Jesus I'm sorry love for the thing I've made it when it's all about you it's all about you Jesus I'm coming back to the heart of worship when it's all about you it's all about you jesus i'm sorry lord for the thing i've made it when it's all about you it's all about you jesus amen thank you for being here this morning together our benediction comes from Romans chapter 15, verse 13, and it says this, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. Go and live all of life, all for Jesus.